All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. They're coming to get you, Barbara. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice candy. Here's Johnny. Vanity. Definitely my favorite city. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. The power of Christ come upon you! This is my boomstick! What's your favorite scary movie? Good evening, and welcome to Shiver, a horror movie podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Daniel Debana. And I am David Uyoa, and as the introduction to our podcast says, what's your favorite scary movie? What is your favorite scary movie? We are talking about the one, the only, I guess there's five of them, but the yeah. one and only, uh, and now the, uh, one of only two. I was about to say, and we can't even say it's the only one just yeah. named Scream anymore. <laughs> uh, the fifth one is inexplicably also named Scream, similar to how Halloween 2018 was also just named Halloween. Uh, but we're here talking about Scream. Uh, and the idea behind this was number one, I mean, Scream's a classic, so I can't believe that uh, this podcast has been on since like 2014 or 2015, whenever it was, and we have not done Scream, right? Just you know, that by itself, I feel like I have to apologize to a couple different people, uh, starting with Wes Craven. All right, you were alive when we started doing this. Yeah. And uh, and we didn't do it. I'm sorry, Kevin Williamson. Really sorry. Okay, uh, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, uh, David Arquette. I mean, the the whole cast. I'm just really sorry. Okay, yes. um, the gaffer from the bottom of our hearts. Uh, the gaffer, the sound guy, the the editor. I didn't know that Patrick Lussier started out on really? this fucking movie. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that. Like, uh, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't, like, this was one where I didn't, like, go into, like, the wiki and stuff for it. Because I was like, oh, yeah. Like, I mean, I rewatched it last night, but I, was, I didn't, like, go through stuff like that for this one. So, interesting. Yeah. So, um, this, this is, like, just about as iconic as you get in, in yes. horror, you know? Um, anything that spawns a series is pretty iconic. Right, because think about how many horror movies don't get a sequel, much less an entire series. Right, like how um, many Slumber Party Massacres were there? Um, just four, the one, right? Actually. Oh, there were four. There were four. <laughs> there were four. And and Damn. actually, I'm going to come to the defense of Slumber Party Massacre. <laughs> all right, because one, two, and three. I haven't seen the reboot, but one, two, and three are so much fun. Yeah, and no, I've only seen one, but it, it it is it is a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong; it was just that was like the first one I thought of that I was like, I don't think there are any sequels to this one. I mean, uh, even House got a sequel, so yeah, the second story, which is not bad actually, <laughs> um, and and it got more than just the one sequel. Uh, yeah. I I haven't seen the others. My understanding is the second one is the only one worth watching anyway. Oh, okay, uh, I've, I've only seen the first two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I really like that first house. Oh, yeah, me too. It's so yeah. good. Uh, and, you know, I think house two was my son's introduction to horror. 
I, I okay. put that on for him when he was about five or six years old. He was like really getting into zombies. And it's such an inoffensive horror movie. Like it's yes. it's it's rated PG. There's no gore in the movie. You know, like it it almost feels like um like like a a campy episode of like the outer limits or something. Yeah, yeah, or, I can see that. Or uh or the twilight zone. Yeah, it's an it's a it's it's an extended episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Kind of. Yeah, it's got that feel. And so like you got cowboys, you've got zombies and I was like, "You know what? I think you can watch this movie." And and he did and he loved it and for like 2 months it was the only thing he wanted to watch and I'm sure he was going to school telling all his buddies like, "Hey, <laughs> have you heard about this 80s horror movie called House 2?" Oh fuck! This this is parenting done right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. no, no, no. Uh, just, <laughs> just, uh, just while we're on the topic, I, I honestly, I think that like my kids got their first real introduction to horror just like in the past year, like uh, when we were doing like a ton of Halloween movies in October, and uh, so like uh, I would uh, Paranorman actually ended up yeah, being like a, a good really one. good one like to to show to kids and it's got a great story i really like paranorman um so yeah i guess paranorman was probably uh my son's kind of introduction to scary movies because paranorman scared the crap out of him but he loved it oh and monster house that was the other one monster oh, house and paranorman house is a good were, one. were our yeah. big watches in october yeah th there was a while there where kids movies were kind of going back to that like 80s style of uh like scaring your pants off uh, but but in a good way, you know, yeah. kind of like the way the Dark Crystal did, where it's like oh, you know the the skeptics were down. like really really oh Watership Down's a different fucking story, man. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's psychological trauma. Yeah, my <laughs> therapist is still thanking me for watching Watership Down. Yes, <laughs> but so, we are here to talk about Scream. <laughs> we are here to talk about Scream. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's there's sequels up the wazoo. There's a, a successful television series. I think it ran for like two or three seasons. Yeah, right. I multiple seasons. Uh, like a cult following this thing, uh, and yet it has mass appeal, right? Uh, so this is really, I would call it as like one of the more important movies in the genre, not just as far as success goes. Uh, but also influence and what it did in the genre itself. Like there, there are always those pillars that you look to in a genre. Right. Right. Um, and I, I think for horror, right. Like there's, there's Nosferatu very early on, right. You've got the universal monsters. You've got the, the hammer horror in the sixties and the seventies, right. You've got that shift with the exorcist in the 80s you've got the the slashers right you've got your halloweens and your friday the 13s and then you've got scream in yeah. in the 90s so um i guess the the biggest question here is how do you feel about this movie over 25 years later so this is this is I've seen this movie countless times. Um, and this is actually the second time in like a month I've watched it. Uh, I was I was I was on a quest to uh, rewatch the first three because I've never seen four and I wanted to be ready for five. Um, so I, I was started watching them again back over Christmas break. But I watched it again last night. And man, even like two viewings in a month, 25 years later, uh, you know, going on 26 years, I guess, or at this point, mm -hmm. uh, it, it this movie still holds up. 
it still does so many things right. When you watch Scream, you get a little bit of everything. Like there's there's a good introductory element to it for mm-hmm. if you're new to horror. There's there's a there's a ton of undercurrent of like you know, purposefully using tropes and things like that and, and kind of twisting them on their side and turn my gain down here. My peas are popping real bad. There we go. Um, you know, so there's, <laughs> there's, uh, there, there, there's, there's, there's something for everyone here and it is very gory, but it also doesn't, um, it, it, while, you know, and it's definitely, you know, a, the, a teen movie. It's about teenagers, mm-hmm. but there's not gratuitous nudity or anything like that. So it rides fact, that I line. I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any, right? Yeah. Because the one time they make the reference, like Jamie Kennedy's like, and here comes the obligatory tit shot. And they cut to Nev Campbell, <laughs> but then you can't see her once she gets her right. bra off, right? So I mean, and then that's what I'm saying. Like, it's there's so many little things like that that are that are so amazing. But like I said... I one of the things I love about this movie is while uh, my my daughter's eleven, she's and she's also a scaredy cat, so she's not really ready to watch this yet. But it does toe that line of something that once your kids are old enough to handle gore, you can introduce them to this because there's some mm-hmm. language, there's some gore and stuff like that. But you don't have to have that really awkward moment like where you're sitting with your 15, 16 year old and somebody's getting railed on camera, right. you know? <laughs> and, you, and you do this thing, and they try to watch in between yeah. your. <laughs> exactly like you can you can just you like you can avoid that and then just be like okay well look i know you like scary stuff so this movie does a lot and i think you're absolutely right in saying that it's a pillar of what uh of what horror could be and the fact that one it's this set the tone for what 90s horror ended up becoming so much so that when they did the fear street movies the first one, when it was supposed to be taking place, like in the 90s, it was very much fashioned like a mm-hmm. Scream movie. Absolutely. Um, the other thing about this is it's impossible to escape how ubiquitous this movie became. It was everywhere. People who have never seen Scream at least know what Ghostface is. Like that's yeah. the type of thing that you, you know, that you shoot for, like, you know, you've never seen a Friday the 13th movie, you know what a Jason mask and a machete is, you know what a Freddy claw is, you know, the the bloody apron and leather face like mask. These are things that people know, even if they've never seen the movies, because they become part of culture. They're, they're just something that people know. And Ghostface is something that, you know, even before Scream 5 came out this year, Ghostface is still a popular Halloween costume every year with yeah. kids that I would like to hope have at least never seen Scream, <laughs> right? I mean, I work in an elementary school yeah. and I see at least one Ghostface every year. So this movie not only revitalized the genre, it became one of those movies that showed what could be done with it. And it just, and it became something that ended up, I don't want to say timeless because there are some very, there are some things this in this movie that This definitely is are, a time capsule. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. It's a time capsule. Like there, there are definitely some things in this movie that, that, that only happen like in the mid nineties, right? Like mm-hmm. that type of stuff doesn't add up, but the overall feel of the movie and stuff like that and the watchability, the enjoyability of it is timeless. So it's, it's amazing that we can go back and watch this one. And I still like, there's still a couple times. I still get a few jumps. The, the, the timing on it is so well done that I don't always remember exactly when things are going to happen. And man, it was, it was still an awesome watch after all these years. Yeah. I mean, similarly to you, this, this is a, uh, 
the entire franchise is one that I rewatch very often. Uh, typically, at least once a year, uh, because uh, there's there's horror movies that I love and there's horror movies that my wife loves. But as far as like the ones that we love together, that's right. like our horror series. Um, that's this is it for us you know like it it came out in a time you know it was that that late 90s early 2000s where uh you know she and i were were first starting to date you know and and it was it was something that we could go to blockbuster and if we didn't know what to rent we were renting screen nice. and and it, it it kind of you know we we developed this love affair with at that time it was a trilogy Right. We developed this love affair with this trilogy because it was it spoke to us. You know, it was it was it was horror for our generation, you know, and I I, I love Friday the 13th. But but that was my parents generation, you know. Yeah. Um, and and it was the, the kind of thing where it was the later Friday the 13th movies or the later Nightmare on Elm Street movies that uh, that started to bring me in. Um. We, and we have actually a really, oh. really great comment here from, from Andy Jacone. He says, like it or not, if it wasn't for Scream, there wouldn't have been I Know What You Did Last Summer 100%, and I like it. Uh, uh, yeah, is- and I will, I will defend the first I Know What You Did Last Summer. Almost based solely on the title, I can't defend the sequel because I'm sorry. It should have been I Still Know What You Did Summer Before Last. We were two <laughs> years removed. But, <laughs> uh, but, but it was, actually, yeah, it was no, written I, by, by Kevin Williamson as well. Yeah. Uh, it just it, he approached it instead of a uh, instead of a satire as as more of a straight slasher movie. Uh, so like the the vibe is very different. But I will die on the hill of I know what you did last summer. Oh yeah, absolutely. And and it's and you're and he's not only right in the fact that it just that it brought the slasher back to the box office. I mean there there is a there is a formula like you said it's a non satirical take on it. But there is a formula that was established by Scream mm-hmm. that I know what you did last summer just followed pretty perfectly yeah and 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 i think that what um what scream did for for the genre is kind of like what um Wes craven did for the genre twice before yes <laughs> like the the twice guy before. is is such such a master at everything he does right because the slasher movie uh, we've kind of talked about this a little bit before. We do slashers a lot here. We like slashers, yeah. right? Uh, the slasher movie was kind of on its way out in 1984 when A Nightmare on Elm Street comes out. And that element of the dream world, right, and adding this new uh, supernatural take on the slasher is what revitalized this thing. And and so Wes Craven kind of did that there, but he also kind of invented the what was the slasher that would be the '80s in early 1970s. I think it was 1972 with the Last House on the Left. Yes. And and if it weren't for the Last House on the Left, with which you know, granted, does have more of like a grindhouse feel to it, there wouldn't have been a Black Christmas, which wouldn't have you know, affected Halloween and we don't get, 
just that through line Wes Craven is always there and always. and this uh, in in my opinion this is his crowning achievement as much as I love a nightmare on elm street and I fucking love a nightmare on elm street I don't rewatch it nearly as often as I do scream yeah, Scream definitely holds up better. And, you know, and part of it would, you know, 20 years from now, you know, there there will be, you know, it won't be another Wes Craven, obviously, RIP. But, um, but there, you know, there will be something in 20 years from now, you know, Scream might not hold up as much. Uh, and so, but I, I 100% agree with you. Like there, he's, uh, he is a guy, you know, it, we would, we'd be absolute fools to do a podcast like this and not acknowledge, you know, just he's, he's a, he's a Stan Lee, a Jack Kirby of the horror mm -hmm. movie genre. Absolutely. So as, as we're talking about the through line that goes through there and we're, we're looking at, you know, kind of the evolution of horror. One thing about this movie that we mentioned is the fact that it's, it, it, it has a lot in there for the dedicated horror fan. Mm -hmm. um, now, Obviously, you know, he created an entire universe in Nightmare on Elm Street. So he's he's no Wes Craven was no stranger to metafiction. It's something that he's messed with a lot. But this really Scream took the idea of metafiction and creating a scary movie in a universe where scary movies exist and really just cranked it up to 11 giving us like i said giving new people things they might not know giving fans great understated fan service like never just in your face just fun fun things so when this happened in 96 it was unheard of this was before the idea of cinematic universes and things mm. like that existed so you know, 96 to now, how does it hold up this idea of creating an entire world that part of our world still lives in? This this metafiction idea, this evolution of horror, how does this idea hold up for you? You know, what, what I find really interesting about this is that he didn't want to do this movie. Uh, <laughs> and, and what surprises me even more is that, you know, he showed interest in the metafictional horror going back to 1984 like you said with with a nightmare on elm street you know but this idea that there is a you know a, a horror world the dream world and then there is the natural world right and 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 you know never should the two meet and you know as that bleeds out into the natural world that's where the true horror begins right, right? and he kind of developed that idea even more in uh, the last of the canonical, at least the original um, Nightmare on Elm Street movies. I don't know if you remember uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. New Nightmare. Yeah, where the original Nightmare on Elm Street movie existed yes. in the real world. And all of the actors who were in the movie, the original movie, are playing themselves in the new movie. It was such a novel concept at the time. And you watch it and you're like, holy shit, I can totally see where he would like be totally turned on by this idea that later led to Scream. Except that he didn't develop Scream. It was Kevin Williamson who developed Scream. And when he was first given this uh, this offer, Craven said, nah, I'm good. <laughs> and I'm like, I what mean, do you mean? Well, like, and this I'm, is and, you. <laughs> right. You know, and that's the thing. Like, it's it's so crazy to think about, like, Wes, uh, Wes Craven looking at something and being like, you know what? This is kind of hacky. <laughs> right. So, um, and and once he gets his, his hands on, like, 
maybe the greatest horror script of all time, right? It, he turns this into something that is totally new. It takes what he had already ramped up to 11, taking that as the base and ramping that up to 11. Because now it's not just his one horror movie that exists in the real world. It's all of horrordom. Yes. that lives in the real world. And and not just that it exists, but that everyone is aware of it. It's yeah. kind of like how like you're always saying like why does no one in a zombie movie know about zombies? Yes. Like why don't they just fucking shoot them in the head, right? Because it doesn't exist. But not only does it exist, the characters all know about it, right? Because what do teenagers do more than almost anything? Go to the movies and have sex, right? Yeah. At least that's the way it was when I was in high school. We went to the movies, we had sex, we got drunk, sometimes all at the same time, right? <laughs> so what what this does is it kind of brings the real world teenager into a horror movie environment in a way that is totally realistic. And and for me, that is like the true appeal of this movie. And even though I agree that this movie exists as a time capsule where this film could only take place in 1996, there's a, a, a veritas to it. There's there's a truth to it that you're like, fuck, that is that's horror. Yeah, that, like and, that. And, and, and it's it's as scary then uh, as it is now. Uh, you and and one of the things I love about the Scream franchise is that it has always evolved. Yes, to go along is... with the times because Absolutely. Scream Four evolved and and it felt very real for 2011, and Scream Five, which I saw last weekend, uh, it, it it also evolved and it felt like a very real movie for today's audience for today's young people, um, and I think that. Uh, Kevin Williamson just he knew how to tap into this idea that there's nothing scarier than the real world and why not deliver a movie that exists in the real world where all of the other shit that does scare us is there including the shit that's not real yeah it's it's incredible this idea you're right this idea that that this you know, like you're you're right. When you watch a zombie movie, it's like, why don't they know about zombies? And it's like, oh, okay, because this is you know like an isolated thing. Like this is this is some you know this is some other branch of the of the the multiverse where zombie movies were never created. <laughs> you know, and so so this one you're right brought it into the real world and and it made it something that you could watch. And it you know it's it's interesting because there are so many little things about this. Like we keep referencing this idea that the horror movies exist. So you say to yourself, when you're watching, when you're watching, you're watching a zombie movie, why don't they know how to handle zombies? So now you're watching a scary movie where they should know they should know. And there's, there's a guy who's literally like the voice of the world, <laughs> right? Randy is Randy is a movie form of every horror fan ever watching one. No, exactly. don't open he that door. Yeah. yeah, he's us. Don't open that door. Don't run up the stairs, you know, and they, they take that and they put it in the movie. And then what makes it horrifying is you go, man, like even knowing what to do, this is still an impossible situation at mm -hmm. times. And so that's what ends up making it so scary. It's like, okay, yeah, no, ah, you know, you, cause you, you always, there's, there's always, everybody knows that one guy who like stocks ammunition. He's like, I've seen every zombie movie ever. When it happens, I'm going to be ready. And it's like, yeah, 
calm down, Jimbo. Like right. we're going <laughs> to, you know, like. Well, and, it, and all of that is foreshadowed in, uh, I mean, it's not the first scene in the movie, but one of the first scenes in the movie, the first time that, um, that Nev Campbell receives a phone call, you know, she says it's always some dumb blonde. Yeah. Running upstairs when she should have been running out the front door. And what's the first thing she does when she's attacked? She Straight runs up upstairs. Yep. You know, so it's it's that sort of thing where it's like, hey, it's game time. What are you going to do? Have you scrimmaged? Because exactly. if you're not ready, you're getting fucked. Exactly. Like, it's you know, th this, this movie becomes less of, you know, like, well, God, what could anybody do in this situation? And it becomes, you know, what happens when the rubber meets the road? Like, you've mm -hmm. got all the knowledge. You know what there is. Like, now can you survive it? And you watch Scream, and it's good. Yeah, no, a lot of people could not. <laughs> um, and so it, this, it was, it's just, it still blows me away. And you're right, like that idea of like r the real actors kind of being themselves. Not that Jamie Lee Curtis was in this movie playing herself, but you know, mm -hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis is in this movie in the form of watching Halloween and they're referring to her as Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, we're not watching right. some movie called like All Hallows Eve that's very Halloween esque, you know, <laughs> with, uh, with with James Lee Taylor or something, you know, like they they you know they they gave us Halloween and they gave yeah. us Jamie Lee Curtis and so it very much and you, you look at Rand Randy's not only got all the info, Randy's giving everybody the info and Randy still gets it handed to him, you know, yeah. like and and that's the guy that you know that's the one you're supposed to know, you know. So and it's just it's incredible that they thought to do all of this. Like, I remember seeing this movie. I, I, I didn't see it in theaters. I want to say it was probably 97, 98. Cause I, it was, it was out on tape when I saw it. Like my parents mm -hmm. had actually gone to see this in the theaters and they rented it um, when it came out. And I, I remember watching it and just, just being horrified at so many things. And now it's funny to watch it 25 years later with as many horror movies as I've seen now. And to like, you know, find other weird things to be scared of, you know, or just mm -hmm. other random odd things. Like, you know, one of the, you watch this movie sometimes. And now that I'm, now that I've seen it all these times, I always constantly like find new weird things to wonder, like, why does Rose McGowan have two beds? <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. Like why <laughs> she's got one brother. She doesn't have a sister that she shares a room with that we're aware yeah. of. Why and they're Rose both, McGowan and they're both two twin beds? beds. And they're like, both twins. Why, why wouldn't she just have a, like a full bed? Or yeah. A like you're bed. a grown ass high schooler and you're sleep sleeping <laughs> on a twin bed with just a made one right next to it. That's weird to me. I don't know. Maybe it's scary. Right. And so it's <laughs> like, it's, it's so, it, there's so much about this movie that, that is just, you're always looking for more stuff. There's always something else to be found. And it's, it's amazing to me that this idea that, that somebody had this idea and so perfectly brought it to life. I think that that's what it comes down to for me is this idea that there, you know, like we see this now and this idea is it's awesome, but it's not anything that's new but like for somebody to actually write all of this down and create this this universe of scream it blows me away that it was ever one not just that, that somebody had the idea and wrote it all down but two that somebody made it and i think that that really shows one the power of wes craven 
um, at that time, you know, like getting his name attached and stuff like that probably did a lot to make this movie go as far as it did. Absolutely. Just, just there being people out there who understand that things have to evolve and change. And that when you do that, you can, you can bring something back. And it, it's just, Man, I, I don't know. Like this, this movie. There, there's almost not enough to say about the evolution of horror and Scream's place in it. You know, a, a lot of that goes to uh, to Bob Weinstein uh, because the the Weinstein's had uh, you know with Miramax kind of like set the world ablaze with um, movies like Pulp Fiction. Oh, you know, yeah. uh, and and they had kind of taken this like indie approach. To, to movies and taking it to the studio system. And Bob Weinstein wanted something that was more genre specific, right? And um, so he told his assistant, he was like, I really want you to find the next new thing in horror uh, because he had bought up Halloween. He had bought the rights to Halloween and I think it was Hellraiser as well. He had bought the rights to. And so he was, he was, he had these classics and he was like, let's, let's do something new. Let's do something different, which explains an awful lot why they can use so much of Halloween in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Because they don't just use Halloween as like a throwaway to like, Hey, here are the rules that were established by John Carpenter. Right. Right. Uh, which it's much more than that. Like, I mean, fucking Billy Loomis. I mean, Loomis has to be a reference to Dr. Loomis yes. from, from the, from the Halloween movies, you know? So it's like the, the fingerprint of horror is all over here. And, and Halloween is kind of like the, the prototype for that, but they use everything from like the, the scenes that they recreate and then turn on their head, right? They use the tropes to like psych you out, like you were saying with with the flashing scene, you know. And yeah. Here's here's the boob scene, you know. And then guess what? There's no boobs. You yeah. Know, so- sorry, perv. Go jerk off to something else. <laughs> you know. We're here to watch a movie, and uh, and and then they use the music to such great effect that John Carpenter score. You know, yes. like it, it's one of the most iconic movie scores, not just horror scores. Movie scores, full stop. And they're using it to great effect in this movie, you know? So, so a lot of that, you know, seeing where maybe not where horror was going to go, but knowing that it needed to change, uh, goes, goes to, to Bob Weinstein. Yeah. And I mean, like, and and just little tiny things that were, you know, like the janitor wearing the Freddy Krueger sweater and stuff like that. Just, just so many fun things. You know who that that janitor was, right? Um, was, it was, was Robert England. No, no, no. That was actually Wes Craven himself. Oh, it was Wes. Okay, like yeah. I, 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 when I saw it, I was like, "Is okay?" I was, I was pretty sure it wasn't Robert England, and so I was looking, but I guess I just never realized it was actually Wes Craven. So that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Um, but you know, just they, those, those types of things are, you know, that's the, t- that's, that's fan service done right. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to make a big deal about it. One of my favorite little things, uh, Rose McGowan's talking to Nev Campbell at one point, and she says, uh, you're really creating this scenario in your head or something, and you're making this sound like some sort of Wes Carpenter movie. Yes. And <laughs> I, I just, I love, I just, I love that so much because mm-hmm. it's like, it's not just like, oh, well, we didn't say Wes Craven. It's like, no, 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 we're, we're smashing these icons together because yeah. that's what this has become. This is a Wes Craven movie centered around the ideas of things created in a John Carpenter 
Contender Series. Like it, that that line is so great. And if 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 this is your first one, it doesn't mean anything to you. But mm-hmm. if you love horror, that line is fantastic. And 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 that is, I think, one of the the beautiful things about this movie is that it it works for the casual fan, where it's like I'm just coming to watch a horror movie. I don't know much about. Uh, or I, maybe it's not that I don't know much about the genre, but I don't geek out about the genre. Yeah. Right. Because uh, I, I, I think most people like to be scared to some degree. There's a reason why horror movies do so well. Uh, but and I would also. Coasters keep getting taller. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that it's that thrill. People like that. Uh, but I don't think most people are also like you and I, where we kind of like take it almost to an extreme and it's like hey let's do a podcast about horror <laughs> movies let's learn about how these things were made and let's talk about them and digest them until uh you know we're we're spitballing ideas about what we're gonna do in our fucking sleep right yes, so definitely. um a lot of that a lot of that ability to appeal to the casual fan but also to the hardcore fan goes to uh, Wes Craven, like we were saying, and and to uh, and, and to Kevin Williamson, right? They are instrumental in taking what was like a germ of an idea, expanding this into something that works in multiple ways, right? Um, and and turning this thing into a classic, right? I mean, at this point, my grandmother knows fucking Ghostface. Oh yeah, you know, uh, everyone knows Scream. So. Um, the the story itself right um and the pacing which we mentioned the pacing right uh and, and that's not even to mention the the twist ending right right um does it work as as like its own story like aside from all the other amazing things that are going on in this movie right the the metafictional aspect the you know the the technical proficiency that's going on here craven was not an amateur at this time you know so he's got he's got a lot of experience under his belt uh so like does does this work does the story work does the pacing work does the mystery of this work what do you think so one thing uh, about this movie so you know the uh, you know every at this point if you haven't seen scream we're well outside of you know like the idea that i should warn you about spoilers so at the end of the movie you realize that not only is is skeet Ulrich the killer um but also that that it's like a pair of them right it's him mm-hmm. and it's matthew lillard which to and, my knowledge had never been done before ah, incredible um, but, uh, so it's funny, um, our, our, our friend, our brother in podcasting, uh, Jeff Mercaccini, he was getting ready to go watch scream five and he gets in our group chat and he's like, man, I'm rewatching the first scream and it's laughable how much foreshadowing they did that these two are the killers. Like he was, and, and so, and he was like, it's, it's kind of ridiculous that, that we didn't see it coming. And, and I had this realization in that it's not ridiculous that we didn't see it coming. There is a very deep seated level of genius in what they did with the plot of this movie. And it's not, it's not just obvious when you go back and rewatch it. It was obvious the first time. Mm -hmm. What was, what's incredible is it was obvious that Billy was the killer. Even the little, you know, they would give us little bits like, Oh no, he's not. She got a call when he was in prison. But then she even points out like, 
wait, you're, the cops called your dad. So maybe you used your one call from prison to call me. And, you know, and he's, you know, the, the, his, his, he's always right in, you know, right place at right time. And yeah. so it's, it's, uh, my wife pointed out to me last night while we were watching it, that, uh, when they're making out at the beginning, they're playing Don't Fear the Reaper. Like, as yeah. she's, you, you know, and it's... Which, by the way, what an incredible cover of Don't Fear the Reaper. Wildly good. But so it's so in your face that he's the killer. And so it what when you watch it again, the one thing that I think is impossible to recreate when you watch Scream again is how fucking duped well first off how terrified we all were when when billy got killed because we were all so convinced that he was the killer then when you find out ah he is the killer you felt so duped and like you simultaneously felt so smart and so stupid like you you were like yes i knew it but uh but i i get i doubted myself when he got when he got cut up right it it was genius it was like nothing I had ever seen before, like just, I mean, because it was, it was like, it was like the double okie doke, right? It was like the, nope, he's the, uh, look over here, look over here. He's the killer. Bam, right cross. He's not the killer. Oh, coming back with the left because he is. It was this incredible <laughs> moment of this one, two punch of defeating your expectations and then making, and then giving you what you expected, but in a way where you were disappointed in yourself. And so that part of the plot, I think, can never, ever receive enough credit for what it did. Um, and, uh, you know, so just that, that idea of the storyline, spectacular. The pacing of this movie is something that the first time you watch it, you're so edge of your seat. It's not something you're necessarily paying attention to. What's incredible about the pacing of this movie, I, I said it at the beginning, is it's oddly timed. You go back and you watch those old slashers and between the music and kind of how long it's been since something's happened, you always, you know, within a couple of minutes here and there, you can kind of guess when the next big thing's going to happen. Whereas in this one, the timing is so odd, you know, out of the box, full blown suspense scene, you know, then, then it cools off and then out of nowhere, the scene with Sydney, then there's a big long cool down period before the Fonz gets his right. And then, <laughs> and then, and then another, by the way, like I was genuinely the first time I saw this, I genuinely thought that there was a possibility that he was the killer. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And they they do like when he starts shoving the scissors like in the guy's faces and getting on to him. So there's 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 this one point where they keep panning to people's shoes Mm -hmm. and and a lot of people are wearing that like work boot style uh, shoe that like steel toe capped work boot. And even though he's in like, you know, trousers and, and a sport coat. He also happens to be wearing those kinds of shoes. You know, yeah. he's not he's not wearing like, you know, loafers or Oxfords or something like that's kind of weird. And 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 then the whole scene with the scissors, it's, yeah. it, it, it was it was definitely odd. And I was like, man, what if it's him? What if he was the one who was who, uh, who was fucking around with her mom? Yeah. And, and so and so as this the, the odd timing of this movie that makes it even more suspenseful. 
makes it hard to remember exactly how things are going to go down. Like that was when I noticed when, when I watched it back in December was it had been a while since the last time I'd seen it before then. And you have this nebulous, you know, uh, memory of what scream is and what happens in scream. But, uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, so, you know, so then when it's, when, when it's playing out, you're like, Oh yeah, I remember this scene. And then all of a sudden something happens that you're just like, Oh God. Yeah. No. Oh, I remember that now. And it, and it still <laughs> comes out of nowhere. Like in the, the, the Drew Barrymore scene in the beginning, Oh, Every yeah. single fucking time I watch this movie, I forget that he throws that patio chair through the window. And every yes. single time I've watched the movie, the patio chair crashing through the window terrifies me. It gets me for a second every single time. And that, like that, that idea of the pacing being slightly askew. It maintains through the entire movie down to the fact that then instead of getting a moderate amount of killing spaced out through the movie, we get a full blown killing spree at the end mm -hmm. of this movie. And so they did a lot with that and, you know, with, with the pacing. And like I said, the story absolutely holds up. It 100% holds up because now knowing what happens, you watch and you still find more and more things where they shoved it in your face that Billy was the killer. And then you're just still even more shocked when Ghostface shows up behind him. And I just, I think that, that what this, the, the outline of this must have just looked insane. Like the storyboarding right. for it had to have just been wild, and and I think that that I think that that idea not only still holds up, I think that that is the the roadmap for a lot of what you do now. Is if you're trying to make a, a new scary movie that's obviously you know it's it, it, you know in the slasher genre or something, then you look for these things that that Williamson and Craven tweaked in this movie and you look for other things that seem minor, but that you can tweak ever so much that makes it unsettling, even for the most hardened of horror fans. One, one of the things speaking to the most hardened of horror fans, um, one of the things that to me didn't hit me right away, but upon countless viewings uh, and my ever expanding, um, watching of older horror movies and uh, and just older films in in general uh how much like like an old alfred hitchcock thriller this can be sometimes uh because we we often forget that the 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 slasher evolved from the giallo movies right of of the 1970s and the giallo movies were largely murder mysteries which took lots of inspiration from the movies of alfred hitchcock and so there's there's this line that's drawn from hitchcock to scream right and beyond yeah. right um and you can even look to the inspiration of Hitchcock in the opening of this, right? You watch this movie, and the first time I saw this, I didn't know that Drew Barrymore was going to die in the first 10 minutes of this movie, right? Um, she's, like, front and she's center, front and center. On, 
all of the advertising for this movie focused on the fact that Drew Barrymore was in this movie. Like I went back, I went back today and I found some of the original trailers on YouTube and it makes it seem like this is Scream starring Drew Barrymore. Well, um, apparently she was originally cast as Sydney, and uh, that is part of what got Wes Craven excited to do the project. So, uh, sir, there, there was like this, you know, the snowball effect of like she gets she signed on, he signed on, and then just a couple of weeks before uh, they start to shoot, she says, What if I don't play Sydney? What if I play Casey? And that kind of threw the whole production into like a panic. But Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson kind of expanded that early scene into something sinister, something unforgettable. I mean, that is one of the most iconic scenes in all of horror movie history. Um, That is it's not a ripoff at all, but if that's not paying homage to Psycho and how everyone thought that Janet Lee was going to be the star of that movie, right. and yet she's killed in the first 20 minutes of the movie in, again, the most iconic scene in the movie, right? Uh, I don't know what is. Yeah, you know, and and that that idea that the there is a trail of breadcrumbs that you can follow after you find out who that killer is, right? That you follow that trail of breadcrumbs, and you're like, "Fuck!" It was right in front of me the whole time. There are plenty of movies where that twist ending comes, and it's like, "Oh no, there something went wrong there," right? We always bring up high tension, all right? Because high tension is the perfect example, all right? Alexander Aja, nice try. Nice kills, but you you screwed the pooch, okay? And that's not what this is at all, right? So when someone says it's so clear, absolutely, but that's like Monday morning quarterbacking here, you know? Like, you know that now, looking back on it, reflecting on it, you didn't know that at the time. And if you say you did, I'm not sure I believe you, all right? right? Um, And and the fact that there were two killers – through so much more into this like giant fucking like crab boil that's going on here where it's just like yeah fucking corn fucking yeah uh you know potatoes crab you want shrimp yeah fucking throw the shrimp in and you throw the shrimp in. like it's just fucking everything that's going on in here you know and because like you said there is a killing spree that goes on at the end but the killing actually never stops. Like there is almost no point in the movie where someone is not either running for their lives. Yes. Or like getting fucking slaughtered. And uh, it's, it's just, it's nonstop. The, the, the pacing in this movie is so damn good. And, and you're, you're never allowed to know. And this is one of the things that I still wrestle with, which killer is Ghostface at which time? 
I, you know, and that is something that on and every rewatch, I try, I try to look for something, right? Like you try mm-hmm. to, you try to like pay attention to their height versus Nev Campbell or something like that, because Matthew Lillard's a little taller than Skeet Ulrich. So you're you're mm-hmm. trying to you're trying to find these things, and yeah, I do the same. Like I was doing that last night. I was like. All right, so in this, you know, like like uh, the one in Sydney's house, it's like okay, so that's probably Matthew Lillard in the right. costume, right? Because then Skeet Ulrich, he's not out of breath when he shows up on the, you know, coming up the window and stuff like so that. So w- when he says, "I didn't do anything," I mean, it's not a lie, right? Yeah, it's and like uh, one of the things I was talking about, you, you're taking this idea and twisting it a little bit. You create this idea of Ghostface. And Ghostface is obviously good. Both of them are, you know, psychotic killers. Um, you know, movie, but but movies don't make people. Movies don't turn people into killers. Movies make killers more creative. What a great um, line! Oh, so good. But uh, one thing that was incredible about this was Ghostface is human, and I don't just mean that in like the scientific version of the word. I mean he's clumsy. Mm-hmm. He does shit that like. When you rewatch it, it's like, that's probably how a real person would react if you hit them in the nuts with a beer, right? right. <laughs> like, you know, like, like at one point he goes to stab Rose McGowan and she just kind of ducks. But, you know, like it, there's so much force, I would assume you would have to put into trying to stab through somebody anywhere on their body that right. when she ducks and he flips all the way over, you yeah. know, he's he's constantly you know, beaten by just a kick to the knee or something like that. He he falls, he runs into sinks, he trips, he's hurt like that. He wasn't this supernatural Voorhees or Kruger. You know, he was just a dude in a costume. And that would, that stands out as being so great to me because you're never led, you're never led to believe that there's anything supernatural going on here. You're always reminded that, Okay, yes, this person is a psychopath. This person is a killer, but this person is human. And that makes it scarier. It's scary that Freddy Krueger kills you in your dreams. It's scary that that Jason is an unstoppable force of nature and is going to hunt you down no matter how quickly you run or where you hide. It's terrifying that no matter how much you fight just a normal person, enough creativity and motivation makes them somebody that you're not going to stop. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and in a lot of ways that's scarier, right? That that's that's scarier than that supernatural thing, which is uh, from it's my understanding why uh, David Gordon Green went with this idea that the only reason why Michael Myers wanted to kill Laurie that night is because he saw her. Yeah, right. And that was it. I mean, it was just oh, look at her she's the next one to die you know and and because those things you know where there are no motivation you know uh sometimes that's really scary you know so things where it's like hey you're you're just you're just a human like that is much scarier and actually the inspiration for ghostface was the gainesville ripper oh i did know that i did know that uh thank you last podcast on the left but i did know that that's where i learned about the gainesville ripper there you go um (laughs) But and and you know you're talking about the, the lack of motivation. What what's even you know like it, not just lack of motivation, but like the antithesis of motivation can almost be found in what Billy Loomis does here because Sydney is the reason that he's free. Sydney identified this other guy leaving the house after her mother was killed. He goes to jail. The spotlight's off. 
Like he yep. could have just been done with it then. And so it's like, it, there, there's no revenge motivation. It's like I said, it's the opposite of motivation. It's just like, well, now I'm going to kill you too. Cause you know, fuck it. Why not? Like, right. You know, it's just, and that's terrifying. Like this dude literally got away with murder and then it wasn't enough. Like he had to go out and kill the person who was so, how many times in the movie do they say that Sydney's testimony is the reason that this guy's in jail and on death row. Uh, and then multiple he just, times. right. And then yeah. he decides to, not only kill the person who's single-handedly responsible for his freedom, but then to frame her father, whose wife he was fucking. Come <laughs> on, man. Like, Billy Loomis is next-level psychotic in this movie while maintaining the, the aura of just a horny teenager. You know, which horny teenagers are only... There's a thin line between horny teenager and psycho anyway. But, like... <laughs> but, like able to maintain this life, which again ramps up how scary Billy Loomis is. At least Matthew Lillard was just a weird guy, right? And then like yeah. you know, at one He's point like, they're like peer well, pressure. It was peer pressure. I mean, yeah, like like his, you know, his motivation was just like his buddy was doing it and he thought it was cool. Yeah. There's nothing about Billy Loomis's motivation that's not horrifying. <laughs> yeah. It's the I'm millennium. There, motive is yeah. motive is incidental. Motive is so as, as we're talking about Matthew Lillard and Skeet Ulrich and Drew Barrymore and all this, what we've got here is a movie where teenagers are the central cast. You know, the the oldest character that has any sort of influence over anything, if you take out the principal, is uh, Dewey. And you yeah. know, Dewey they, they they tell us Dewey's twenty five. And so he just barely misses that demographic of 12 barely. to 24, <laughs> but he was 24. He was 24 for a whole for a year. Whole year. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, and you look at all these iconic lines, all these things that we just keep dropping, all the things that when you go back and watch the movie, the ones that you're excited to hear people say, what that comes down to is not only the writing, but the people that were cast in this and picked for these roles. So when you look at this movie how well do you feel each character was cast, uh, you know, actor to character? And how well do you think each character kind of plays into the story and playing their part? I I don't know that there have ever been characters in a horror movie, especially teenagers in a horror movie, that have been this well written. Um one of the things that I heard in a um, like a making of video is that Kevin Williams Williamson was compared to John Hughes in the way that John Hughes wrote young people and and teenagers, and yeah. that he just kind of took the John Hughes aspect of uh, the teen drama and and the teen comedy and applied it to a slasher. And I was like, holy fuck, that's 100% correct. Because you watch those John Hughes movies, you watch The Breakfast Club, you watch Ferris Bueller, right? And there's there's something authentic about the way that those characters are there. Even if they are stereotypes, they represent us in some way. Right. There's, there's, there's something there that Hughes could tap into in the same way that Williamson can tap into we all know a randy right in this case uh Demona, you and i are we are randy. the randys right, right? Mm -hmm. but we, we we also all know the sids we all know a sydney where her life is just like it's fucking tragic 
you know, and she's trying to cope with it and just can't. We all know a Tatum that is like just kind of like a goofy, happy-go-lucky yeah. girl, you know, just like like just like like uh, like uh, unbelievably hot, but doesn't even seem to care that she's yeah, like that hot. Exactly, yeah. you know, and and we we all know we all know a Billy Loomis, you know, the the attractive guy who kind of broods in the corner, and and we and we all know a Stu, you know, the fucking goofball, the guy who's not serious. You know, he's he's just he's just along for the ride. We all know these people. They were our group of friends. We were one of them. And the the actors that they cast were so perfect in those roles. There's there's a there's a strength to Sydney that Nev Campbell brings, which I, I can't imagine anyone else doing. Like even right. Drew Barrymore, who was cast as Sydney originally. I don't see her as Sydney the way that I see Nev Campbell. You know, I I don't know that any other actress in the in the mid to late nineties could have done Tatum quite like Rose McGowan because, like you said, like there there is like a, an unbelievable attractability to her, right? Uh, this is the definition of a smoke show. And yeah. yet the way she plays her is not like the, you know, uh, you know, turn your nose up. I'm too good for you. Hot girl. It's like, I'm just kind of happy to like be around and to yeah. like have a good time, you know, which kind of explains why she's with Stu, who is like definitely the reacher in that relationship. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh uh, yeah. 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 Nothing yeah. against Matthew one of Lillard, them out kicked you know, these, one I, of them out kicked their coverage. <laughs> I mean, Matthew Littered is better looking than I am, but uh, it's like, dude, you know, you reached there and you reached far. Um, yeah. But uh, but it kind of explains that relationship where he's also kind of that like, you know, happy go lucky sort of guy who got I, I do believe him when he says peer pressure. He got caught up in this Billy Loomis bullshit, you know, uh, I mean, granted, he went along with it. So there's a fucked up aspect to him. Yes. But. Um, and, and actually, if the way I think the killers work out do actually work out, he did more killing than Loomis did. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, when you when you I think I think that I think that I think that computes. I, I think I think you may yeah. be right on that one, because I'm, I'm pretty sure that he's the one who kills uh, Casey and her boyfriend because Casey was his ex. Right. So he he'd be the one to have an axe to grind there, right? Uh I'm pretty sure that he's the one that attacks, although he doesn't kill, right? Uh, uh attacks Sydney. Mhm. Mm the one I'm not sure about is uh is the principal, right? Henry Henry Winkler. Um I'm pretty sure that that's Loomis because we see um we see Stu walking with the girls to his house. Oh so, yeah, the, so, so because that's, sure. yeah, that's like right after he cancels school, and yeah, right. we see the three of them walk off together when he decides to have the party. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that that one's uh, that one's Loomis, but uh, I'm pretty sure that when Tatum dies, that's him also. Because yeah, because he had just answered the door and he's hanging out in the party like doing the host thing, right. and, and he, he and, comes in, he comes in through that door, and he goes back through that door, right. And notice, I don't know Billy, though, because Billy Loomis comes in through the front door, right? Uh, a little bit later, 
but it like remember the doorbell rings and he gets up and she goes to the garage to get a beer and then he's like right in the middle of the party because he comes back in and is telling everybody like oh my god it's 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 gail from from the news show or whatever and it's like that's happening while the killer shows up in the garage with her and then we don't see uh we don't see billy until later so i think i think tatum might i think it might be billy loomis that gets tatum because be. because Stu's like right in the middle of throwing the party and living his best life hosting this massive high school party. There's there's also the other thing that tipped me off was like there was there's a playfulness to that ghost yes. face in, in that scene that to me speaks more to Stu's personality, particularly yeah, with Tatum. Yes. Uh like we don't see that with Billy at all, ever. Um, you know, and then of course. You know, the 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 whole thing with attacking Billy, chasing um uh chasing Sydney, which would then in effect, you know, be the killing of the cameraman and all that stuff, that would be Stu, you know? Yeah. So so I there's definitely a darkness to Stu, even though he says peer pressure. Yeah, well, like uh, when I when you look at the the cast of this movie, one of the ones that is that's interesting to me now that uh, that didn't really, you know, in '96 I was 13, I didn't care about Friends, you know, yeah. and it's like now as an adult I've gone back and watched Friends, and what's what's amazing about this character of uh, Gail Weathers, which yeah, you know, what a God, great name. God. God, such a just it's such a perfect newscaster name. And you know, she even makes that joke like I should be a meteorologist or whatever. Yeah. But when you look at this character of Gail Weathers, it really looks at this idea of like what would have happened to Monica if she hadn't had friends to like reel her psychosis in. Like if she had been yeah, allowed to just become this untethered OCD bitch. Like, <laughs> like you can see Monica, like not just because it's the same actress, but like you can see that character of Monica becoming Gail Weathers in an alternate universe where she never hangs out with her brother and and all and all of those people. Uh and so you know there's 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 a goofiness to Dewey that is that's playful and and great and I mean it's it's that thing that you know obviously it worked for David Arquette in real life because he walked away yeah. from this movie with Courtney Cox you know so yeah. which you again, know talk, talk about another smoke show you know wow and so so there's you know the 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 casting of David Arquette as Dewey in this role um, that one. That one stands out to me a lot now as an adult kind of looking at it and being like, man, like they did such a good job with him because we're never led to believe that Dewey is a complete and total fuck up. We're just right. led to believe that he's still kind of a kid. I mean, at 25 and you're the deputy of, you know, like, I, I guess, you know, it's a small town, but it's pretty mm. rich. So, yeah. um, you know, but so you're 25 and you're like second in charge of the police department of this small town. Like that, that's a lot to be like on a 20, a 25 year old me shouldn't have been in charge of anything. Like right. there are very few things that 25 year old me should have been allowed to be in charge of, let alone a whole town. And so, and he plays that so well because mm -hmm. it's easy to look at this and say that, Oh, Dewey's so stupid, but he was never presented to us as stupid. He was no, just, he, he was just, I mean, he was, he was young. He, he was, was, it was naive. Uh, and he had that same sort of like vibrancy that yeah. Tatum had, you know, maybe that's a genetic thing, you know, from, from the two of them, 
that they just, you know, they grew up in a house where they were really happy, you know, like there are people like that. <laughs> there yeah. are families where everyone's happy and likes <laughs> each other, you know, um, I've heard of these families. Right. It happens. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it for, for him, I think it's, it's kind of like a cross of, uh, I, I think the perfect example would be, um, like, like get smart, you know? Okay. Uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, agent, uh, agent, was it 86, right? He was, uh, he was really good at his job. He was also just like, not necessarily dim witted. He was just kind of happy go lucky. Yeah. I and mean, he, he, he didn't want to, he wasn't bond. He wasn't trying to impress right. anyone. I mean, it's, know? it's, it's Michael Scott from the office, right? We're reminded yeah. constantly how good of like a salesman he was and why he was put into this position and probably why he then got to be in the get smart movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because exactly. they were, they were, they were of the same ilk. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's, and it's not just the teens. I mean, it, it really is everyone, the adults yeah. too, you know, because Henry Winkler as the principal is fantastic. You know, he's, he goes, he, he runs that range of like loving, caring, uh, you know, educator to like, uh, there's definitely a dark persona here, which at, I still don't think I've seen anything darker than this, no. uh, you know, with, with Winkler and, I mean, that to me was shocking because I always knew him as the Fonz and he was a tough guy, but he wasn't a bad guy, Yeah, you know, and, and I definitely got bad guy vibes from him here, you know. Well, and when, when you're looking when you're looking at Cass, you're looking at Easter eggs, uh, Joseph, uh, Joseph Whip being the sheriff, he was a cop in Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, and, yeah. and it's and it's a throwaway role. But if you love Nightmare on Elm Street, you're like, I, I know this guy. Wait, well, I've seen him be a cop before. Yeah. And so, you Linda know, the Blair as as that reporter that, uh, yeah. that stopped Sydney, you know, that first day coming back into school, you know, you see her and you're like. Holy shit! That's that's <laughs> Linda Blair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just, I mean, it's so like for you're right from the from the main cast to to the to the little minor roles. It was just perfectly cast. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I think the the only thing we haven't discussed, which is a a very major thing, and I think we we've, we've done a really good job of like skirting the yeah, subject. I think so too. Um, yeah, because I mean, for these movies, like it's so difficult not to just like get right to the nitty gritty, right? The fucking kills, man. Um, like Craven is—he's obviously no stranger to violence in his movies. You go all the way back to House, uh, Last House on the Left. I mean, that is brutal. No matter Absolutely what happens, brutal. just just keep saying to yourself, "It's only a movie. It's only a movie." <laughs> Yeah. Oh, what a great poster. Oh my God. What a great poster. Um, I actually have only seen the original Last House on the Left one time because it is such a difficult watch. It is a um, hard, hard watch. It is, it is brutal. And I think that that's one of those movies where the low budget and like that, that almost like documentary style filmmaking because of the low budget uh, actually makes it too real yeah and 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 too difficult to watch where it's like ooh, this is this is dark it's almost like a snuff film yeah uh so like uh, very clearly i mean he is no stranger to this i mean 
Last House on the Left, The Hills Have Eyes. I mean, another just absolutely brutal horror movie, right? Uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, his his filmography reads like a best of the best of the horror genre from the 1970s on. So we should not be surprised that the kills here are numerous and gory, right? Um, How do the kills and the gore, right? Because clearly there's a lot of them. Clearly, there's a lot of gore, right? Uh, do you think that it adds to or takes away from the movie? Like, does does it does it work with or against the movie? So, when you watch this movie from the very first kill, which is the football player, right? And mm-hmm. he, and I mean, and he's gutted. And there is no lack of viscera spilling from this man, right? right? Like, like he cut him just right. And uh, so from that very first kill, like you are presented with the, the depth of brutality that you're going, that you should expect when you're watching this movie. And then they turn around and he's, they string Drew Barrymore up, like as she's dying or right after she dies. And like, you know, in presentation style for her parents to find her. Mm-hmm. And what's incredible about the brutality of this movie is it never crosses that line into cartoonish. The, mm-hmm. you know, like it, it skirts with it. Like it, it flirts with cartoonish, right? All the blood on the windshield. And she turns on the wipers, Um, you know, like the the getting her neck broke by being stuck in the cat door and going up like it flirts with cartoonish. But it's easy to say it's not cartoonish when you're comparing it to Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. Which is which is what people are going to in 96 when this came out. That's what people were going to go back to when they're thinking about Wes Craven. So the bar for not being cartoonish was low, but he still jumped way over it while still giving us just enough to make it super memorable. I think that every kill in this movie serves a purpose. And I think that that purpose has played out beautifully. I think that kind of the one wrong place, wrong time murder is the camera guy. You know, he just kind of fucked around and and found out, like, you know, (laughs) other than, other than that, every other one serves a purpose. You're If it is Stu, at the beginning, then yeah, you're right. There's an ax to grind there. And there's, there, there's a reason that he would want to get back at the school. Cause they even reference like, wait, I thought you broke up with her. And he's like, I did to go out with you, you know? And so, yeah, there, there's, there, there is an ax to grind there. So there, there's a, there's a reason that those two would be killed. You know, the principal was, was killed. Cause he, he was, you know, maybe he was getting a little, he was too close to everything right he's mm-hmm. he's there in the school and it and it serves a purpose and so when you look at how great all of these kills are and and i mean like i said the 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 the, the, the garage door one man the garage door kill on the surface is 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 yeah it's really campy and but it's also super original and it's believable enough Right, like because it's, they, they, it's it's believable that a seventeen-year-old would think that's a way out. Yeah, exactly. In in, and, in, in a in a moment of stress, and they and they show us the motor shaking and breaking. You know, it's not just like this effortless thing where it goes up. So they 
they they tone down how cartoony that kill is by making you wonder if that's how it's going to happen. Like I, I, when I rewatched this in December and it had been so long, I had a moment where I was like, Oh, like my thought process was, Oh, that's right. Like the garage door opener breaks and it drops and it kills her. And then it goes up and I was like, Oh shit, that's right. Like it goes up and it breaks her neck or, you know? And so there's, there's enough of it there that you can still be surprised. And so I think that it absolutely, I I don't think that there's a single kill because even with the cameraman, you know, it just adds to the tension of Gail trying to get away in that van. So yeah, is it can't be that, that he is bled all over the windshield. She hits it with the wipers. Yeah. But does it serve a purpose? Absolutely. I think that when you, when you look at the kills in this movie, they are numerous and none of them are pointless. None of them are just a kill for the sake of killing someone because it's been eight and a half minutes since we've done it. Right. And so I, I think that that is that is a that is thin thin ice when you make a slasher movie. Is making you know like you're you're looking to make your kills memorable. You're looking to make them meaningful. Like that's what we're looking for when we're watching a slasher flick. And you know, the one that's kind of not memorable, the camera guy, we don't actually see him get killed. You know, we just, we just see the aftermath of it. We see the part that is memorable, which is the windshield wipers. So can't be yes, but creates a memorable moment. Um, And you know, Andy, who has uh, stuck around with us for the entire show. Thank you, Andy. Uh, Kind of shares your sentiments. He says the gore and the campiness of the kills are so freaking original. It takes nothing away. It was new and amazing. And I kind of agree here. Um, The, the, the kills were definitely new. We so infrequently do we see brutality like this in horror movies before. Right. Uh, Scream kind of marks uh, a point where the the brutality of the killer is just ramped up. And I think part of it was that there was an edginess to the 90s that maybe wasn't there before. Right. Each decade, we kind of ramp up what is okay and what's not okay, And we want to push the envelope. And Scream definitely did that. But it did it in a way where, number one, these things looked real, right? Uh, it, it, uh, it, like, I absolutely love in Friday the 13th Part 2, the machete to the face, you know, in... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I forget his name, but uh, the quadriplegic guy, you know, and then the wheelchair bounces back. That's a great kill. It's not an incredibly realistic one. It's very cartoony. Like you said, it's very over the top, right? The camp factors there, you know, but oh, all in all, like I wouldn't rank that in the greatest kills of all time. I I would put some of these up there, you know, yeah. but by, by the time you get to the very end of this movie, the entire first floor of this house is like covered in blood. Yeah. It's it's yeah. it's absolutely crazy how much blood was on the floor, on the walls, on the actors. Um, Andy says it was amazing how they knew where to draw the line so that it wouldn't become laughable. I agree because there's all the humor is intentional. And uh, you never laugh at something that you weren't supposed to laugh at. Uh, exactly. Like even even the line, uh, one of my favorite lines in the movie, 
where Matthew Lillard is, um, you know, pointing out that the gun isn't there anymore, right? Um, oh yeah. He says, oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go, you know, he says, "Okay, go go take care of her, you know, shoot her." Um, and he says, uh, "Houston, we have a problem, right?" Uh, and he goes, "The gun's not here." Uh, Billy Loomis comes over, and Steve Ulrich is so covered in blood that the phone slips out of his hand and hits Matthew Lillard in the back of the head. And he goes, <laughs> you hit me with a fucking phone, man. Right. That line was totally ad libbed. They decided to keep it like that's intentional humor that was kept right. in that movie. Like there are things that are really, really funny amongst all of this violence. Right. But it's that like that light sky blue and white countertops that are just you know covered in this like red blood and the and the blood looks so real we're so far away from that like dawn of the dead corn syrup stuff this this is stuff that like you see that amount of blood and it's like holy fuck like there's got to be gallons upon gallons of blood that was used for this and 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 yet it's all believable because they've been slashing each other up for the better part of like 30 minutes you because that end deep, just man does... I'm, I'm feeling kind I'm of feeling woozy. A little woozy. <laughs> <laughs> oh god matt matt like like i He's i have the show dude i have i have such i have such a deep deep love for matthew lillard and like when it's all said and done it comes down to scream and slc punk like but like like just <laughs> and but god like that is every single time like everything that Stu does when i rewatch this movie makes me laugh but you're right and it's because it's supposed to because when we're looking at the cast and their, their spots like we were talking about it you're that's where it's supposed to happen yeah yeah, uh, the other line <laughs> that I absolutely love, and it's a Matthew Lillard one, is um, he uh, <laughs> he says uh, says you're says you're you're gonna call the police. She's like, <laughs> yeah. He's like, oh, my parents are going to be so mad. Because <laughs> yeah, like, maybe you guys can go up to my parents' room and, I don't know, reconnect. It's like, subtlety, Stu. Look it up. <laughs> like, just, it, he's, he, he's so... What's, what's incredible about that idea of, of there being two killers and them both being able to reach this level of brutality is they're constantly presented as the polar opposites of each mm -hmm. other. And so then when, so that again makes it even harder to look back on who did what kills. Cause you're right. Like when you, when you're looking at things, it's like, man, it does make more sense for Stu to do the first couple, but God, like that, that, that disembowelment and stringing up Drew Barrymore, like that is, that is insane. And yeah. then you then you start to put the pieces together and you start to attribute those to Stu and you're like, oh man, like that's so weird. It's crazy. It, it's they crazy, just they, but... they 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 really it was it was incredible the way that they that they brought back this idea of the over the top killer mm -hmm. without crossing that line that all that that your friday the 13th and your nightmare on elm streets eventually did granted freddie kind of had free range to do that the, the whole mm -hmm. dream world thing that that's what it became right. about but uh but he, it, it it never but nightmare let's face it nightmare on elm street didn't wait before they crossed that line when he rips johnny depp down through the bed right. they they didn't they didn't you know exactly hold off on crossing that line <laughs> but they 
you know, they very much re- reminded everybody that it's like you, you can have a killer out there that 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 does this for the fun of it and they're going to get the most out of it. Cause I think when it comes down to it, when we're looking at these two as killers is we're looking at this idea of the fact that, like I said, they had the antithesis of motivation. They're just having a good time. And so if you're going to, you know, a crime of passion is going to happen and be over. But if you're doing it, to, if you're doing it, cause you're going to have a good time, you're going to have fun while you're doing it. And so yeah. the brutality of the kills that's it makes sense it comes off there yeah you know? it, it makes sense because these are two guys that just seem to genuinely love killing people and so now they're trying to make sure they have you know if you, what it, what it, you know uh do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life right so <laughs> that's 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 Stu and billy they 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 found what yeah. they love it was unfortunate for the people of that town but they found what they loved and it wasn't work for them it was just no. fun it was so <laughs> as you know, as so as, as as we approach the end here, we got to get into that part of the show where we always rate a movie. We like to remind everybody who may be new to the show. We only rate a movie against itself. While it's easy to look at Scream versus these other slashers that we've talked about or the ones that are going to come after it. We're just looking at Scream. And so since we do since we like to think of it that way, we always create a unique rating system for uh, for each movie. Before we went on air, Dave and I kicked around a few ideas, but I'm going to go ahead and pull one here because we've only slightly mentioned it, and I think it definitely needs a mention here. So we are going to go out of a fo- possible five rules of surviving a horror movie. <laughs> what do you give this? And in case you were unfamiliar with Scream, you cannot have sex because the virgin always survives. No drinking or <laughs> drugs, and you never say, who's there? I'll be right back or I'll be right back. <laughs> so out of a possible five rules of horror movie survival, what are you going to give scream Dave? Uh, I, I mean, this is nothing short of perfection. This movie, there's a reason why I watch it every Halloween season, uh, it and its sequels. Uh, I, this is a perfect five out of five rules for surviving a horror movie you know um i mean fuck if we could go higher i'd go higher you know yeah no i'm i'm with you like i'm willing to gold star this one like we did Candyman. i'm willing to, to say this is this is absolutely a six out of five because there's there's nothing to pick apart about this movie as being negative yeah not not one damn thing this this movie is it's perfect it's absolutely yeah. perfect i i 100 agree there is you know, 25 years later, and as many times as I've seen this movie, you know, I'm I'm the type of guy, and and from what I, from what I understand, from what I know about Dave, you are too. Like when I first finish something, that sheen that's on it, you know, I I tend to finish things and be like, that was that was awesome, uh, you know, mm-hmm. almost you know almost regardless, especially if it was something I went into expecting to like. You know, we both do this with concerts. We we've had yeah. this conversation, <laughs> and so with a, a lot of you know, and so it's easy to then rewatch a movie and start to find those things that, that, that maybe arc you or, ah, I didn't notice that the first time. That's, that's kind of lame or that that's a little bit too much, but man, 25 years, countless viewings later, watching it twice in a month. I still have not one negative thing to say about scream. And so, yeah, I'm willing to gold star stamp this. And, and I mean, hanging up in the, the hall of fame with Candyman because, uh, and uh, I believe a hereditary, we even went hereditary, higher than hereditary yeah. did like seven. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I'm absolutely willing to, to gold star this and hang it on the wall as being a perfect movie. 
Yeah, and um, on top of that, I do want to, uh, and we get no kickback here because um, uh, they don't even know we exist. Uh, please go watch the new one, okay? Not just because I liked it, uh, not just because I think you'll like it, but because it is a celebration of the original Scream, of all things Scream, and it is also its own movie. I mean, it is absolutely fantastic on its own. And if you want more Scream, you have to make sure that you support Scream. All yeah. right. Kevin Williamson did not write this one. Wes Craven did not direct this one, obviously. Uh, but Williamson did produce. There was involvement. It felt like a Scream movie. Go watch it. And ensure that we get a scream six because right. I, I'm, I'm not done with scream and, well, and, and i don't think you should be either i haven't seen scream five yet but hearing you say it's a celebration of all things scream becomes even more meta because the original scream the one we're talking about here was a celebration of all things slasher film yeah. Right. And so now like scream has become such an independent entity that you can now make another one. That's, that's, you know, like, like the first one, like how the first one celebrated everything slasher film. Now, now you've got enough scream mythos that you can now create a movie that is just a celebration of all things scream. And for a franchise to come full circle like that and hopefully keep going that's incredible. And obviously it wouldn't exist without this one. Absolutely. So um, please make sure to um, uh, to uh, like and subscribe. We haven't said that yet, right? Because we're yeah, we're, no, we're I guess you YouTube, can though. We are on right? YouTube, so yeah, like, subscribe, yeah. click the bell so you get notifications. Yeah, I did all... that every day when we start recording. My phone bing dings to tell me that Shiver's recording. So yeah, you know, so <laughs> get get that get that notification, like and subscribe. Um, uh, man, my son's gonna really make fun of me for saying that. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, and we're uh, old. Sure you, yes, we are. <laughs> so, so old. Um, and and I'm not even that old, but I'm 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 that old. <laughs> uh, make sure that you're listening to some of the other Mount Geekmore, uh, not Mount Geekmore, Geek Bro network podcasts like mount geek more there it is uh you know there's there's something for everyone whether it's on mount geek more on woo bro which was recording just a little bit before we were uh with ish friend of the show the friend let of the show ish you. was on it tonight right. yes yeah. friend of the show ish uh from the better let me tell you podcast another one of ours uh seasons a tv podcast kick flicks crimacopia uh dose of ellie comedy fitness and I think that's all. Um, did, 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 did we still Childlike It Best? Maybe. I don't know. Let's, Maybe. Let, let's say it anyway. There was Child one like called Childlike It Best. It's and, out there to and, go listen and, to. And, and, and maybe there still is. So uh, so please listen because, uh, you know, we uh, content creators, we, we like to create content and uh, and we like for people to hear it. And, and we uh, we like to interact with you. Yeah, you know? and we try to record at the same time, uh, Wednesdays, 9, 8 Central. Andy, thank you for hanging with us for the whole uh, the whole episode today. If there's Always. anybody else who's been watching, yeah, and by the way, Andy, um, for the for the audio listener, Andy has given this uh, a five stabs. 
um, uh, which, you know, is the name of the Scream movie in Scream yes, as, as things are just constantly more meta. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, thank you. If, if you are listening and you want to see what we look like, you want to interact. Like I said, we're usually Wednesdays at 9, 8 Central. Uh, we did have to take last week off. We were going to do Scream, but I had COVID in like the three days when I felt <laughs> awful. This fell right in the middle. Um, we are working on a February lineup now. We'll be releasing. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, all of that. We are at Shiver Pod. Uh, so make sure you go follow us on those. We'll usually try to tell you what movie we're going to be watching a day or two in advance. So if you haven't seen it or you want to refresh so you can watch and interact, um, feel free to there. And uh, also, we've started kind of tagging some people from the movies in them occasionally. So a retweet would go a long way uh, towards maybe oh, yeah. getting, uh, getting somebody on here that would... Uh, I, I tried to get Matthew Lillard on, um, and while I'm disappointed that he's not here, I'm also terrified that if he had been on, I would have just gushed, like, the entire time. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, yeah. So, but we're, you know, so if you follow us on Twitter and Instagram, all, all the shares, all the likes, that all helps us out so much. And also on Spotify, and um, uh, it's always been able to do it on, on the Apple app for podcasts, but on Spotify now, you can rate podcasts. So if you like what we do here, Please give us a five star, bump us up that algorithm, help us find some more people. There you go. So on behalf of all of us here on Shiver, fright you very much. <laughs> <laughs>